So as I began this morning, I was thinking about how do you keep moving down the road? How do you keep thinking through things? And, and uh, a passage came to mind that I've heard Pastor Tim uh, use at the beginning of sermons before, and I thought it was particularly appropriate. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. That's the beginning of Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities. It's a compelling opening. It's this kind of striking contrast, right? Two things completely opposite at the same time. And today, we're going to do very much the same thing. As we journey with Paul and Timothy and Silas down the road from last week's adventure in Philippi to the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. And as I was thinking about this, that opening, those opening lines, that opening paragraph from the tale of two cities could very well describe today and our world. And there's a reason why people quote that opening paragraph so much. Because we hear it, and this thing that's supposed to be about Paris and London, that's the two cities in, in this case, feels like it could be today. It resonates with us. We get it. Because what Dickens does, what any good novelist does, is he tells a made-up story to tell us something about the truth. The best stories, the ones that we remember, are the ones that tell us the truth, even though they're not real. And Dickens was a master at this. What does he tell us? The best and worst, wisdom and foolishness, belief and incredulity. That's an old-fashioned word that means the inability to believe. Light and darkness, hope and despair, everything and nothing, heaven and hell. And I practically could have used that as my outline for this morning. And we're going to look at two different cities today, two different responses to the gospel. So if you would turn with me to Acts 17... We're going to read verses 1 to 15. This is what Luke writes. When Paul and his companions had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As is his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, examining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas 
in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who, who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they had heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul by, uh, to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought them to, into Athens and then left instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your church, for the ability uh, that we have to gather and to learn your word today, to praise you. We thank you that your church has survived from the very first days, from the days of Paul to now. Thank you that you have given us that connection, that heritage of faith. And I pray that this morning we would see a little bit more clearly who you are, who you would have us to be, and how we can live for you in a world that doesn't understand who you are or what we are to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> I don't know about you, but I read that. And it felt very familiar. I felt a sense of deja vu going through it. I mean, didn't I just preach this last week? How do I do justice to this text and not say the very same things I said last week and just put it in a different location? It's no longer Philippi, it's Thessalonica, or Berea. I mean, last week we talked about what it means to be a witness for Christ. We saw Paul's pattern of evangelism the people he ministered to, and the priority he put on the perception of the kingdom. And we see it all again here this week. The synagogues, the opposition, the desire to show the truth of the gospel. It's like same song, second verse, right? And that is sometimes hard to know what to do with. I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to get bored when I see things that I think are redundant. And, you know, why say it again? Didn't you just say that, Luke? And I want the punchline. I want the point. And what's going on here? But Luke's redundancy here gives us a couple of things that we need to remember. He's giving us the details of the development of the early church. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's not trying to skip over things. He's telling us what actually happened, but he's also doing more than that. By telling overlapping stories, episodes, if you will, with distinct 
themes and echoes. He's showing us not just what it was like, but what we should expect. What's likely to come our way. There's a pattern here. And the more we repeat things, the more we remember things, right? And Paul and his company have moved down the Via Ignatia about 100 miles. Three days' journey if they had horses, maybe a few more if they walked. Amphipolis and Apollonia were sort of night stops on the way to Thessalonica. They were, they were about 30 miles or so apart. And Thessalonica is this important city. It's got a strong harbor, sizable population. Unlike Philippi, it's governed in a Greek style, not the Roman one. But otherwise, it sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? Paul starts with the Jews. There's problems in the market. The authorities get involved, and he has to leave town in a hurry. Then there's Berea, 50 miles to the south, southwest of Thessalonica. It's off the main road, but if you're going to get to Athens, you've got to go through Berea, at least if you're doing it by land. And he starts in the synagogue, and uh-oh, there's opposition again, and a quick exit. And it all feels familiar. And there's a reason why... Luke does this. He wants to show us a pattern. Paul is both successful and faces opposition at every step of the way. When Paul proclaims the good news of Jesus, this is going to happen. Both are true, virtually without fail, throughout Acts. And it's something that we all need to remember. When we are proclaiming Christ, when we are blessed by God for doing that, that doesn't mean there won't be difficulty. In fact, just the opposite is likely to be true. If we faithfully follow God, there will be opposition. There will be trials. Those two things go together. And as we look at today's passage, we're going to see that pattern play out, but we're also going to see some differences. Even the pa- though this pattern of events is similar, the reactions of the people are decidedly different. And so let's take a closer look. Let's take a look at how Paul declares the gospel. Thessalonica has a larger Jewish population than Philippi. We know this because Paul starts at the synagogue. And in Berea, we learn in verse 10, also there is a synagogue. And once again, Paul Starts there. So the pattern we saw last week is is consistent. But we're going to see some differences. In Thessalonica, Paul declares the gospel among the Jews repeatedly. The text tells us in verse 2 that he did so on at least three Sabbaths. Now, it could have been three weeks in a row. It could have been over a longer period of time, and there were three specific Sabbath days where he gets up and speaks. But in any case, we know one thing clearly. Paul sharing the gospel is not a one-and-done event. He keeps going back. He declares the gospel over and over again. It's a way of life for Paul. And it indicates to us that the gospel has to soak down into who we are so that it sort of oozes out of us at every step along the way. And, and the way that Paul does it is interesting. When we read in verses 2 and 3, 
the description of what Paul does, he doesn't give a Turner Burn sort of speech. He doesn't give them an emotional appeal to get them to make a decision. He doesn't try to guilt them into belief. What does he do? His approach is to show the Jewish people that the Christian story, the story of the Messiah, is their story. Luke says that Paul reasoned with the people in the synagogue. He doesn't demand, he doesn't force his views, he doesn't get exasperated with them. He goes to the scriptures and shows them. And we read from Luke that he does this in two ways. First, it says he explains to them. Or it says he explains and proves. So what does explaining mean? It literally means opening the scriptures. Going to the scriptures. That's the source of where Paul goes, goes to. And then he proves something very specific about Jesus. And here, proving means literally setting two things side by side. So what Paul does, kind of like our two cities, he compares. He says, okay, here's the scripture. Here's Jesus. Put them side by side and see if they don't line up. They match. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. Not any Messiah, our Messiah. That's what Paul says. Remember, Paul is Jewish. He opens the Old Testament to them. There is no other scripture for the Jewish people and directly connects Jesus to the story of the Jews. And it's important for the Jews in the first century. It's important for us today, too. But think, remember... As we've talked about, the Jews in the first century are scattered. They are out of their homeland. They're exiles. And they have this long memory of being exiles. They were exiles in Babylon. They were exiles in Egypt. This is who they are. In the relatively recent past, there was this free Jewish state. And first century Jews were looking for a hero. They were looking for a Messiah that would be like Judas Maccabeus in the intertestamental period who would come and set up a kingdom where the Jews would have their own kingdom again. They were looking for a modern-day David. They wanted a political kingdom because, look, things weren't great for them. Remember, we talked about last week that the Roman Empire is pretty anti-Semitic at this point. The emperor had recently exiled all the Jews from Rome. Of course they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted one that would keep them safe. And honestly, I don't think we're very much different today. I mean, we look around and see the way that the culture turns has turned against things that we believe in. And we are tempted to think that all is lost unless we gain political power. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian on the left or a Christian on the right. We have a tendency to think that way. We think that we're not going to be safe, that we're going to be forced into uncomfortable situations. And we might. I mean, look, there's a reason why we head in this direction. Because politics, and by this I don't mean contemporary partisan politics, but the polis, the the community that we live in, the day-to-day things, the life of the state, 
All of these things matter. This is where we live our lives in the here and now. And sometimes it's hard to see God at work in the day to day. And it's fairly easy to see what's going on with activists and politicians, or at least we think it is. But it's not, this is not a question of not being involved, but of what we put our trust in. Psalm 146.3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. And while the, the temptation is understandable, that's not the way that we need to go. And Paul's approach is not to deny the very real issues of the day. It's not to not get involved. But what he does, what he shows them, is that their issues, the very real threats that they are facing, have led them to fundamentally misunderstand the Scriptures. You see, in the first century, the Jewish people rebelled against Jesus because he didn't fit their idea of what a Messiah was supposed to be. It's not a case of them being unfaithful or disregarding God, but it was a case of them letting their issues and their desires override God's story. And it's something that all of us are capable of doing. We all do it all too often, and Paul shows them the truth. He walks them step by step through the Scriptures to show them that what he is saying is true. In fact, what Paul does is exactly what Jesus does in Luke 24. Turn with me there for a minute, starting in verse 17. This is a familiar story to us. It's the story of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road after Jesus is resurrected. And in verse 17, Jesus starts walking down the road with these two people, and he asks them, What are you discussing together as you're walking? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions who went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Paul does exactly what Jesus did. He shows how Jesus showed the two disciples on the way to Emmaus that the political thoughts that they had were not the right thoughts. God showed up in a way they didn't expect. Right? The Jews were looking for a Messiah to deliver them, and they thought they had found him, but he didn't deliver them in the way that they expected, and so they're disheartened. Jesus set them straight, and he does it 
by going to the scriptures. I want to read a passage um, from what British New Testament scholar and expert on Paul N.T. Wright says about this specific passage because as I was studying this week, I was struck by what he says. Paul, says Luke, was interpreting and explaining that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and raise again from the dead. Perhaps Paul's own sufferings had driven him back again to contemplate not only the sufferings of Jesus, but the messianic nature, the scripture-fulfilling nature of those sufferings. Perhaps he always mentioned it, and it's only now that Luke has drawn our special attention to it. One way or another, this forms an important part of his explanation to the Jews, since the fact of a crucified Messiah is a major roadblock in the way any devout Jew believing that Jesus was or could be God's anointed. How could God allow such a thing? How could God be honored thereby? And how could God do through such a Messiah the messianic work of bringing peace and justice to the world and rebuilding the temple? Paul was only too well aware of those questions and had good answers for them, but the answers always began for him with the scriptures. And we can only guess the passages he employed, but our guesses can be be pretty accurate in view of his use of scripture in his letters on this topic. Isaiah 53, of course, but also Genesis 22, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, referred to in in Romans 8.32. Psalm 22, read as a prayer of the Messiah, and perhaps Zechariah's dark oracles of suffering and vindication. But as always, it wasn't simply a matter of a few proof texts, though those would help. It was a matter of the entire plan of God. The whole sweep of the narrative, the story of Israel going back into the dark tunnel of slavery in Egypt and only to be rescued at Passover, of David fleeing Absalom only to be reinstalled after the great victory, of Jerusalem being destroyed and the nation carried away to Babylon only to be brought back and rebuilt after a tribulation everyone had thought would be final. In other words, of a story whose main themes were all about suffering and vindication, disaster and reversal, death and resurrection. From there, it was only a short step to the conclusion. If that's how the story works, and if that's what the messianic prophecies are shaped by, it really does appear that this Jesus, crucified and risen, truly is the Messiah. And that's the story Paul tells the story of suffering and redemption. The passages that Wright mentions are crucial. Isaiah 53 is that famous passage where we read, by his stripes we are healed. God reveals that the Messiah will suffer for us. Psalm 22 is the psalm Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he does this, remember, verse numbers didn't exist. They don't exist to the Middle Ages. He's evoking the whole psalm. And the whole psalm starts with suffering and ends with glory. This is a a story of anguish turned to redemption and joy. And the story of scriptures is this story of suffering and redemption. And it's not incidental to the Jewish story, to our story as Christians. It is the story. Over and over again, you might say it's baked in 
to the story. Why must the Messiah suffer? Okay, Psalm, or Isaiah 53 says he will suffer, but why? I want you to look for a minute at Genesis 15 with me. Genesis 15 is interesting. In Genesis 14, Abraham had rescued Lot, and then Melchizedek uh, blesses Abraham. And Abraham, at the beginning of the chapter, is frustrated. I don't have an heir. And in the, this chapter, chapter 15, we get what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And so if we start in verse 7, this is what we read. God says, um, God says to Abraham, He said unto him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know what I will, uh, that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram said, uh, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. After the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with, a great, with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give land uh, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And he goes on. Okay, that's weird. What's going on here? This, is, this seems strange. Why would I go to this passage? Animals cut in half and smoking fire pots. And I need you to understand that this is crucial. This is what uh, Ligonier Ministries has, a, has a, an article about this. And this is what they say. And I thought it was really good. During the covenant ratification ceremony. Okay. A covenant is an agreement between two people. It's a binding agreement. Okay. During this ratification ceremony, the parts of several killed and dismembered animals were laid side by side, and there was a path between them. And the parties of the covenant would walk between them while swearing oaths to keep the covenant. In effect, they were calling for the curse that fell on those animals, death, to fall on them if they break the covenant. I know it sounds weird to us, but that's the way that it works. And Genesis 15 describes how God used such a ceremony to assure Abraham that he would give the patriarch an heir who would bless the world. But note that the only party to the Abrahamic covenant who passes between the animals was the Lord, who manifested himself as a pot and a torch. God was calling for his own death should the covenant not be fulfilled. But since he cannot die, that means his promises would certainly come to pass. To ensure that the covenant would not fail, God essentially adopted 
all the aspects of the covenant himself. Even the curse that Abraham would have submitted to had he passed between the animal pieces as well. Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, failed to uphold their covenant obligations. All they deserved was death and the consequences of failing the covenant. However, God showed himself willing to take on the curse Abraham's descendants deserved, thereby upholding divine justice even while fulfilling the covenant himself. That is the great love of God. He doesn't let our sin and failures stop him from blessing his chosen. I'm spending a lot of time here, I know, and I'm, I'm going through some, some heavy stuff, but it, this is crucial. It is so important, both for Paul's day and for us. It's easy for us to believe in church that Jesus died for us. We see it plain in Scripture. It was harder for the Jews of Paul's day to understand. And it's harder for us to maybe understand why it was necessary. But this passage in Genesis 15 shows us why. The Jews had a, of Paul's day had a harder time, not because they were unaware of Scripture's but because the Messiah that they see doesn't meet their understandings and expectations. They know they haven't fulfilled the covenant, but they wanted a Messiah to do it for them, right? The way that they thought it would need to be done. And what Jesus does is he shows, you didn't fulfill the covenant, you can't fulfill the covenant, but I as God can and will fulfill the covenant. And we face this, a similar problem today, both inside and outside the church. Inside the church, we often get sidetracked. We forget how God works because He's not working the way that we want Him to. Right? And we follow the rules and we do the things that we think we're supposed to. And then, uh, let's be honest, the message of Christianity isn't it exactly the message that our culture wants to hear? The message is, you can't save yourself. And in the church today, we find a lot of people who are frankly embarrassed by the Old Testament. I'm spending a lot of time here on purpose. They think that somehow God in the Old Testament is mean, but Jesus is nice. In the Old Testament, we have too much retribution, too much killing, too many weird sacrifices and vengeance. And God should be like that, we think. There is a prominent evangelical preacher and son of another prominent evangelical preacher who recently released a book that says that Christians must unhitch, that's his words, our faith from the Old Testament. And it pains me to say this because he's an amazing preacher. And he's done a lot of great things. But he's not only wrong, but he is gutting the message of Scripture. He is cutting the legs out from under Jesus because you don't get Jesus without the Old Testament. And many today, from sometimes from within the church and definitely from without, Look at the idea that Jesus has to die as divine child abuse. Why does anyone have to pay like that? And why would God demand that his son die? And they, they not only don't understand it, they see it as immoral. 
And that's one of the reasons why that preacher said we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. It's understandable why, on the surface, the idea that God would require the death of another, especially his own son, seems terrible to us. But both, whether we're inside or outside of the church, both of those perspectives, the problem is they're based on really poor understandings of what's going on here. Right? So when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we don't mean somehow that He's not God. The reason that the, church, the Jewish leaders go after Jesus is because they, the reason why they charge Him with blasphemy is they know that Jesus is claiming to be God. They know in John 8.58 when He says, Before Abraham was, I am, He is making a direct claim to be God. Jesus' suffering on the cross is not divine child abuse. It is God taking the penalty of sin on Himself. It is God fulfilling that covenant in Genesis 15. The cross is God doing what He promised. In the covenant with Abraham, God says, I will take on the penalty for your transgressions. I We'll build this into the very nature of the covenant I have with you. And the cross is God keeping his promise to suffer for the good of the world. And that's the opposite of something to be embarrassed about. Some would say, okay, but why is it necessary? Maybe I can follow that logic, but I don't buy that it had to be that way. But if you think about it, when there is a violation of any kind, big or small, someone has to pay the price. If you're playing a sport, it doesn't matter if it's football or basketball or volleyball. If you break the rules, there's a penalty. There's a cost. And we see it in law. If we break the law, there's a fine or there's jail. At work, you can get fired for non-performance, right? Or there is forgiveness. But forgiveness doesn't mean there isn't a cost. It just means that the offender doesn't pay the cost. The one who's offended pays the cost. Right? In Jesus' death, God pays the penalty. In his resurrection, we see that God is greater than any penalty. Why death in this case? Because God is the giver of life. God is life. So in John 1, when we read that, that Jesus is the light and life to all mankind, we find something really important here. And when we choose against God, we automatically choose death because God is life. So death is a necessary consequence of sin. Not because God is being mean, but because we have chosen it. It's that serious. I know this is really heavy stuff, and I've spent most of the time here. But it is the heart of our faith, and it's the heart of the opposition to it. It gets faster from here on in. Next, dissension and decisions. We begin to see the differences in these two cities up close and personal now. And last week it was the pagans in Philippi who opposed Paul and were offended by him. And this week it's the Jews in Thessalonica. But the Bereans respond differently. 
To be fair, some of the Jews in Thessalonica, we read in verse 4, believed. But more of the God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women, we read, believed. But in the main, the Jewish people rejected Paul's ongoing mission. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And this causes immediate problems. The word that we read as jealous could be translated zealous as well. And there's two possibilities that scholars give us for what's going on here. On the jealous side, it could be Paul's winning over God-fearing Greeks. These are people who are not quite yet Jews. They haven't gone through the full conversion to all Jewish observances. They're not quite proselytes. And perhaps the leaders of the Jewish synagogue are going, he's pulling away our converts or potential converts, and they're not happy about it. It also could be that they're zealous, and I think that's probably better Wright says that they are righteously indignant. And they're opposing Paul because they don't believe he's right. They think that he is, in our terms, a heretic. And he's leading people astray. The Jews in Berea, by contrast, are of moral noble character, we read in verse 11. Why? Because they listen eagerly to Paul. And they search out the scriptures for themselves, to see if what Paul is saying actually lines up. And when we, reach Christ, when we preach Christ, when we proclaim Christ to our friends and neighbors and family, there's always going to be different responses. Some are going to decide for Christ. They're going to be persuaded. And some are going to be, are going to be rebellious. And maybe it's out of jealousy, and maybe out of righteous indignation, and some, as we're going to see in a moment, because they simply oppose God. Notice that Paul doesn't stop because of the opposition. He doesn't quit telling people about Jesus because he can't persuade them or because they think he's wrong. When he goes to Berea, there's a better response. And many Jews, we read in verse 12, are converted, along with many Greeks. Greeks. And he doesn't stop when he faces dire developments either. He changes location, but he doesn't stop. In verse 5, we're back to deja vu, back to the marketplace and the mob, and at least some of the Jews have done something that is just mind-blowing. They go to the pagans to get Paul. Apparently, their righteous indignation only extends so far. They go after Paul through people who could legitimately be called lowlifes. They are rabble-rousers looking for trouble. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, they pull out Jason, the guy who's hosting them. Probably an early convert. And this is what they've told these troublemakers in verse 6 and 7. He says, They have caused trouble all over the world and now come here. And Jason has welcomed them, and they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. They take a surface level of Paul's teaching, and they twist it in such a way that it preys on the fears of the culture at the time. Paul is a troublemaker. No irony in finding troublemakers to call Paul a troublemaker at all. And they they say he's proclaiming another king. There's no king but Caesar. And if you remember Julius Caesar, Shakespeare, from school, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. 
had to memorize that in eighth grade. You might remember that about 100 years before Paul, Julius Caesar was killed by Cassius and Brutus. And Octavian and Mark Antony fight a civil war with them. And they did it basically in the area where Paul is standing. And then Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus. Yes, that Caesar Augustus. And he ends up fighting Anthony and Cleopatra again in the same basic area. So the area around is pretty sensitive to people saying we, are a diff- we have a different king than Caesar. And 50 years, in, or no, sorry, 20 years later from Paul, there's going to be three emperors proclaimed in Rome. So this idea of another king, the Jewish people are preying on a legitimate fear that the people have in twisting what Paul said and what Jesus said. So Jason has to postpone, and Paul leaves under cover of darkness for the sake of the church in Thessalonica. And we get a sense by reading 1 Thessalonians, which was written only a matter of weeks or months after these events, about what's going on. And it is very much worth reading through 1 Thessalonians to fill out this story of what happened. It's about three pages in my Bible. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes. And you can get a better sense of what's going on. And you get a sense for Paul's concern for this church and what he wanted to see to him. But the Jews in Thessalonica aren't content to leave it with kicking him out of their town and their synagogue. They hear that he goes to Berea and they cause trouble there and he has to do the same thing again. And he's sent to the coast and on a boat for Athens. So I want us to see that standing up for Christ and declaring the gospel is always going, is going to gain converts, but it's also always going to create consequences. People don't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to be told that the things that they've built their lives on are wrong, or at least not right enough. None of us like that. If there's no opposition to declaring Christ, then either you're not doing it, or you're not telling them the whole truth. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be creating difficulties unnecessarily. After all, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to tell, Paul told, tells this church that he's just planted to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. We read earlier from 1 Timothy and basically the same thing. Finally, discerning our way today. We've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of heavy theology that was going on. And it's easy to feel like kind of we're running in circles and, okay, I get it, but what what do I do with this? I have five takeaways. One, sometimes defeat isn't. Paul has been run out of town three times in a row. But it's not really defeat. He leaves behind three churches. And think about this. Two of those churches the church at Thessalonica and the church at Philippi, get letters that become Scripture. That's not defeat. And as we see next, we're going to see next week, he moves from Berea to Athens, the center of Greek culture and thought. We don't always see what God is up to in the moment, but we can be sure he's working. Second, we must faithfully proclaim Christ. 
Not the Christ we want, not the one that our culture wants, but the real one. And the only way that we can know Jesus to do what the Berean Jews did is to diligently search the scriptures, Old Testament and New. Not study it like a textbook, but to study it like a letter from someone who loves us. We want to know what that person is thinking and feeling, what matters to them. And if we want to know Jesus, we have to know this book. Third, we must be ready for opposition from within and without. It may come from people who look like believers, as well as people who look nothing of the sort. Opposition will come, but we must stand up for Jesus. We must proclaim the truth. Paul did not disdain or hate the people that opposed him. In fact, I think it's easy to argue the opposite. Remember, he was one of those Jews up until the early part of Acts. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what is our faith in? Ourselves, the structures of power in our culture, or the God we claim? Paul's faith was in God, and it let him continue moving forward in the face of unbelievable adversity. People are going to take the truths of our faith, and they're going to twist them to their own ends. We need to be ready to give an answer when we must, standing up in gentleness and truth. Fourth, we should let the reactions of the Jews in Thessalonica to be a warning to us. We cannot stand up for God by relying on those who twist the truth and do evil. They thought the ends justified the means, and, it was, and it's easy to fall into that trap. We can't do that. We have to be above board. That's the message of 1 Thessalonians. Finally, sometimes converts can come from places we never expect. For the most part, it wasn't the people that we expect who become Christians in Thessalonica. It was the pagans. That's what we read in 1 Thessalonians. The ones on the fringes. The not-quite-right ones, really. Us. Way back in 1993, uh, the musician Steve Taylor wrote a song called Jesus is for Losers. And here's part of the refrain. Just as you are, just a wretch like me. Jesus is for losers. Grace from the blood of a tree. Just as we are, at a total loss, Jesus is for losers, broken at the foot of the cross. So I think it's only appropriate to end before the last song with Paul's charge to this church in Thessalonica at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.